Welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today we're learning about Korea's history from ancient times to the present day. Let's get started. Dear World Civ students, Korea is vital to study for its own sake, but also because of its growing importance in world affairs. It's been divided into North and South since World War II, and the site of a terrible and bloody war from 1950 to 1953, when North Korea invaded the South and was repulsed by the United States and United Nations forces. In recent years, North Korea has threatened the United States with nuclear attack, and the South has risen to become a global economic power and cultural leader. So Korea is always highly, highly relevant. In February 2018, South Korea hosted the Winter Olympic Games, and you can see on the page there's cute mascots and Young Sung Bin, the gold medal winner in a skeleton. South Korea and North Korea had the world's attention that whole month. It was fascinating to see Olympics teams with players from both, from both North and South Korea included. While since 1950, North Korea has remained a totalitarian state and closed off to much of the world, South Korea's economy and popular culture have changed radically in the course of a single lifetime, your instructor's lifetime, that is. This relatively small country of about 51 million people wields great global influence well out of proportion to its size. But then, as Californians, we can understand this. Our state has only 39.5 million people, but is vastly influential, too. Tensions between North Korea and the United States crested at the beginning of President Donald Trump's administration in 2017, with Trump promising to retaliate against a North Korean nuclear attack, quote, with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which the world has never seen. U.S.-North Korea relations then whiplashed again with President Trump and Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who had taken power in December 2011, exchanging personal letters. Trump complimented the letter-writing ability of Kim Jong-un, saying they fell in love during their 2018 letter exchanges. The two leaders met twice in 2019, in Vietnam and again at the border zone between North and South Korea, and there's a photo below of their meeting uh, on page two of the letter, and yet no progress was made on any diplomatic front. It was all seemingly for show. President Biden has not met with Kim Jong-un, who has been holed up in near seclusion throughout the pandemic. Biden met with the leaders of Japan and South Korea at the East Asia Summit in Cambodia in November 2022 and pledged to maintain military readiness and continue to conduct drills in response to North Korean aggression. Yet there is no new strategy for dealing with North Korea, and some analysts are calling for the U.S. to accept North Korea as a nuclear state. The COVID-19 pandemic demonstrates the massive differences between North and South Korea, as South Korea has been held up as a model for other countries to follow with regard to its efficient response to the pandemic, while North Korea, completely opaque to the rest of the world, suffered what we think was a terrible toll during a summer 2022 Omicron-related wave. We don't know what the near future holds for the situation on the Korean Peninsula. However, with North Korea still being the country most likely to launch atomic attacks on the United States, especially on the West Coast, they deserve the attention of all American high school classes. Strangely, though, Korea is ignored in American high schools in the social studies curriculum often. 
By giving careful attention to Korea here in our class, let us hope through knowledge of the past, we can build plans for lasting peace. Moving on to Korea's early history, people have been living on the Korean Peninsula, which is about the size of Minnesota, for thousands of years. Archaeologists have discovered wonderful pieces of pottery dating from 10,000 BC. Dolmens, which are prehistoric stone structures in the style of Stonehenge in England, they're similar to Stonehenge, have been found scattered through Korea as well, such as the one pictured below on page three. The people living on the Korean peninsula ate rice as their staple food, much like those living in Vietnam or South China, whereas in North China, millet and later on wheat was preferred. Improving the yield and nutritional value of the rice crop has been a major historical concern for Koreans. The first recorded history of, of Korea was from a Chinese source as the Qing dynasty fell to the Han dynasty in China. A Han military general named Wei Man was accused of rebelling against the Han emperor, and so he fled over to present-day Korea in 195 BC and founded the Chosun Kingdom with his capital approximately on the site of modern-day Pyongyang, North Korea's capital city today. There are various legends about the birth of Korea, dating back as far as 2,000 or 2,500 years prior to this, but we'll start with the source from recorded history and go from there. While Chosun was independent for almost a century, uh, then the Han Dynasty in China basically ruled them for 400 years until 313 Common Era, when the Koreans rose up and expelled them. In that long period of Chinese domination of 400 years, Korea came under the cultural sway of Chinese civilization. And this would be a long-lasting influence throughout Korean history. Chosun's people also had lots of interactions with Japan, too, because the Japanese island of Tsushima is very close to the southeast corner of South Korea. There was a lot of boat traffic and trade between Tsushima and Korea from very early in history. As long as there has been a Korea accordingly, it has been sandwiched between China and Japan and strongly affected by its relationships with these great powers. Now, Moving on to the three kingdoms of Korea, this goes from about the 400s common era to about 1231. Korea was divided uh, in the early 400s, roughly between three kingdoms. Kuguryo, uh, which is in present-day North Korea and had its capital at Pyongyang. Pakshe, which was created by the son of Kuguryo's founder. It was located in southwest Korea and had close ties with southern China and Japan. And then Shila, located in southeastern Korea, was the third kingdom. Pakcha, Koguryo, and Shila were all a bit different from each other in art and architecture, and always at war with each other until they were finally unified. China regularly involved itself in Korean affairs. And for example, the Shui dynasty failed to conquer Koguryo. So the next dynasty, the Tang, made an alliance with the Shila kingdom to attack Kuguryo again, and it worked as Shila and the Chinese conquered it. Of course, the Japanese did, did not want to be left out of the action, and they backed Pakche. But after losing 400 ships in a terrible defeat, 
to the combined to the combined fleet of Sheila and the Tongs, Japan pulled out of Korea. Sheila then turned on its former Chinese allies and kicked them out of Korea as well. And this is how in 668 Common Era, we see a unified Korea for the first time in the seventh century. This continues the theme of Korea's fierce independence and it's often skillful manipulation of its great neighbors to preserve that independence. With the rise of Sheila, we see the beginnings of a national Korean culture, even though China was still very influential. While academic work, laws, and so, for, and so forth were still written in Chinese, the language spoken by the people was nearly always Korean. This language was not related at all to Chinese and not much like Japanese either. Lots of trade continued with China. After all, it was only a boat trip of two or three days to get from West Korea to China. In 682, a national academy was founded in Korea, where Chinese literature, Chinese history, and Confucian philosophy were studied. In 918, Wang Qian, the leader of a powerful, noble, and successful merchant family in northwestern Korea, started a rebellion against his leaders, and the country was reunified under the name Korea in 935. Wang Qian led the rebellion under the Chinese Mandate of Heaven theory, where if a government seems to falter with the people and to have lost the support of heaven, then rebels are justified in taking over. It's not so far from our Declaration of Independence, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Uh, that's Thomas, Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. So beginning in 935 Common Era in the 10th century, for nearly 300 years, Korea rolled along, building its own civilization noted for its distinctive spin on Chinese art and philosophy. The Sheila kings, seeking to support Buddhism in all areas of culture, built many Buddhist temples and printed Buddhist sacred, sacred readings uh, with movable wood blocks. And I've got a picture here that you can see of this early printing technology. The Sheila kings also were famous for improving agricultural yields and boosting trade and the economy in general. They're contemporary with Charlemagne and his kingdom in modern in modern day France and Germany uh, in roughly the same time period, a little bit later. Um, but you see these like early proto nation states coalescing around a powerful monarchy. Everything was going on pretty well. And then the Mongols came and we'll hear about that momentarily. We'll see you back in a minute on Purdy's podcast. All right, you're back with Purdy's podcast, Korea under the Mongols, 1231 to 1392. Genghis Khan had died in 1227, but this didn't end the expansion of his empire. In 1231, the Mongols destroyed Korea in one swift campaign and took it over. Stubbornly, the leaders of Korea hung on for years, fighting the invaders from a little island off the west coast while the rest of Korea was occupied. Finally, in 1270, 39 years later, 
the Mongols got the Koreans to submit. And in the peace arrangement, the Korean king's son and heir married a Mongol princess and created the new kingdom of Koryo. Koryo has been called a son-in-law state as the Korean kings continued to marry Mongol princesses dressed like Mongols and wear their hair like Mongols, studying abroad in the Mongol capital of Beijing, which was still mainly a Chinese city. With all of the new traffic between Koryo and Beijing, the Korean leaders embraced Confucian philosophy, and so in a weird way, Korea was more exposed to Chinese culture through the Mongol invaders than from the Chinese themselves. No empires last forever, and the native Chinese Ming Dynasty ousted the Mongols in 1368. With their hold lost on China, the Mongols certainly could not keep Korea, which was farther away, and the Koreans got their independence again. The Mings, having defeated the Mongols, were not in a mood to deal with Koreo kindly and started to push against their shared border. Koreo general Yi Sung-jae was a military hero as he'd been fighting Japanese pirates all along, and the king gave him an army to fight the Chinese, which was a bad idea. Instead of fighting China, he just marched the other direction and took over Koreo for himself, founding the Choson, or Yi, named for its founder, dynasty in 1392. Yi named his dynasty after the old Choson one because he wanted to recall Korean glory days. It worked pretty well, as this dynasty lasted until 1910 for five, 600 years. The Choson kingdom, 1392 to 1910. Historians divvy up this kingdom into two halves. Number one, before the Japanese invaded Korea in 1592, and second, 1592 all the way to 1910. Again, Korea's history is defined by its relationships with its powerful neighbors. For the first half of the Choson Kingdom's reign, Korea thrived in its new independence. For one thing, the rice crops were more productive because of new farming techniques that ensured the land wouldn't wear out. Also, the Korean language, written in a new script called Hangul, was being used for new literature, songs, and poetry, which helped to build a new national spirit, a real national spirit. There was only one city of any considerable size. Seoul had 200,000 people, but then in that period, few European cities were that big at all. This is why Cortes and the Spaniards were so impressed by Tenochtitlan in 1519, uh, which is roughly the same time contemporary with the first half of the Choson Kingdom. In the late 1500s, Japan had unified under strong warlords, and the greatest was Hideyoshi, 1536 to 1598. After conquering Japan, he said China was up next. The most efficient path to attacking China went through Korea. And so Hideyoshi landed in southeast Korea near Pusan, precisely the area the Americans and United Nations forces clung to at the start of the Korean War in 1950. Hideyoshi captured Seoul in three weeks, and the Korean king and his nobles fled north to the Yalu River, exactly where the North Korean army fled in 1950 after being routed by the Americans. But then the Koreans slowed the Japanese down, used hit-and-run tactics on land and their turtle ships at sea. And I've got some turtle ships pictured below with a modern reconstruction and a uh, drawing of an ancient one. These turtle ships were commanded by Admiral Yi Sun Shin, who never lost a battle at sea. 
the turtle shells, the turtle ships were covered in plates, um, very strong wooden plates with cameras. Sorry, not cameras, cannons up front, not cameras. And on the side were spikes to prevent boarding. There was a dragon head at the at the front of the ship, and it might have had a cannon mounted in it, or it might have been blowing smoke as like a smoke screen, so enemies couldn't find it. We're not exactly sure. Anyway, combined with these turtle ships and their prowess, and the eventual the eventual help of the Chinese, the Ming Dynasty sent sent fifty thousand soldiers to help. The Japanese were eventually defeated by the Koreans, but what a bloody war and disaster it had been. The main lesson the Koreans took from the war was to just assume a defensive crouch at all times and fiercely guard their borders on land and at sea. Korea only allowed 21 ships per year to trade with Japan and cut its trade way back with China too. Later on in the 1600s, Korea's relationship with China got even more complex. A non-Chinese foreign dynasty from Mongolia, the Manchus, conquered China in 1644. They forced Korea to be their vassal state at the same time. While the Koreans agreed in public, they despised the Manchus, refused to wear their hair in the Manchu style, and stayed true to Confucian ideals and Ming Chinese practices like in dress and hair. We're more Chinese culturally than the Chinese now, said the Koreans. For their part, the Manchus built a palisade wall across the Chinese-Korean border, and then they pretty much ignored Korea. Korea separated itself from the outside world after the Japanese had been kicked out, but still was affected in its own way. Tobacco found its way to Korea in the 1600s from North and South America, along with chili peppers, also from the Americas, which strongly influenced Korean cooking even to today. And then below there's a picture of Korean pickled green chili peppers. Yum. Christianity spread in Korea more than in China and in Japan, and Korea has more saints in the Catholic Church than any countries except for Italy, Spain, and France. The growth of Christianity conflicted with, Confu with Confucian ideals, but it forged on anyway to the modern era. Now, when we come back on Purdy's podcast, we'll pick up with Korea in the late 1800s as it tries to keep foreign powers out of Korea. And we'll see you next on Purdy's podcast. All right, you're back with Purdy's podcast. The Koreans felt they had a good shot at keeping the European powers out of their business and their country. Even though China and Japan had already been forced open in the late 1800s to Western trade, in 1866, the United States sent an armed steamship, the USS William T. Sherman, up the Taedong River to Pyongyang to try to open up Korea to trade, having passed without permission far into Korean territory. When the river ebbed and the water was very low, the ship was grounded. Korean soldiers attacked and set fire to the Sherman, and the crew was slaughtered. Five years later, the U.S. Navy sent five ships on a revenge mission. After the Koreans refused to negotiate, the American ships shelled several forts and fought Korean army units, killing 243 Korean soldiers while losing only three of their own men. The Koreans only had uh, old matchlock rifles, while the Americans had new Remington carbine rifles, which rarely jammed and were the state-of-the-art in weaponry at the time. 
After this mission, both sides still refused to meet diplomatically until 1882. Still, the Chosun Kingdom felt their success in fighting off the Americans demonstrated their ability to keep Korea independent and safe from Western domination. The Chosun Kingdom continued its careful path between Manchu, China, and Japan through much of the 1800s, carrying out its Japanese trade only with the daimyo, the lord of Tsushima, the Japanese island near Southeast Korea. The Koreans supported the daimyo with money and gifts and titles, and so he was kind of in the service of both the Chinese shogun and the Korean king. In 1871, the emperor of Japan was restored to power and the shogun removed. The new emperor of Japan had his foreign secretary, which is like our secretary of state, take over trade with Korea instead of the daimyo of Tsushima. But the Koreans didn't recognize the power of the, of the new emperor. We only serve one emperor at a time, the Koreans said. And as much as we dislike him, we still just serve the Manchu, the Chinese emperor. The Japanese were angry about this, but they didn't go to war, though many favored it, with, with Korea. They forced a treaty of Kongua in 1876 on Korea, which made Korea independent and gave Japan new trading rights with Korea. And a page of the actual treaty is below on page nine of the, of the letter. So in the late 1800s, Japan had taken the lead in the centuries-long game of who runs Korea. But this was no shocker. China stayed busy in Korea's affairs, too. When a local Korean rebellion against high taxes flared up, the Korean king called China for help, and they sent an army. Japan felt threatened by China's action and sent their own army to Korea, and the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 began. Japan very easily swept aside the Chinese forces, shocking everyone in the world but Japan. In the peace agreement, China gave Taiwan to Japan, and Korea won full independence, which really meant Japan was running their affairs now. Korea enacted a new Western-style constitution in 1895, and they passed various reforms, such as, number one, no more special rights for nobles, number two, they formally ended slavery. And number three, they informally encouraged people to wear Western-style clothing and hairstyles. And this new period also sped up the progress of, Christian, of Christianity in Korea as well. Korea has always been skilled at playing great powers off against each other, and they did this again in the 1890s. With Korea defeated, the Korean king, feeling dominated by the Japanese, snuck out of his palace and claimed asylum in the Russian embassy in Seoul, and Russia protected him. With Russian help, he returned to power in 1897 as Emperor of Korea, claiming equality for the first time with the emperors of China and Japan. Korea under Japanese domination, 1905 to 1945. In the bloody Russian-Japanese conflict of 1904 to 05, Korea got caught in the middle. Japanese armies occupied Seoul and made Korea a protectorate under Ito Hiroshima, Hiroshimi, and Korean Emperor Kojong abdicated in 1907. The Korean army was disbanded and ex-soldiers fled to the hills to fight a guerrilla war against the Japanese. In 1910, Japan went ahead and just annexed Korea because Hiroshima had been assassinated by a Korean radical and Korea wasn't paying back its loans to Japan. 
For the next decade, Japanese rule was pretty rough on the Koreans. No Korean-owned newspapers, no political meetings, no freedom of of assembly. In 1919, directly after World War I, Emperor Gojong, who's pictured below, died, and a million Koreans used his funeral as an excuse to protest against Japanese rule. So Japan eased up on them in the face of this popular pressure. In the photo below on page 10 of Seoul, taken during Japanese rule in the 20s or 30s, you can see Japanese store signs and people wearing traditional Japanese clothing too. Japanese rule was not popular in Korea, but they were under Japanese influence during this period. Now, Hiroshima had been the first prime minister of Japan under the new Meiji constitution in the 1800s. So when he took over and ruled Korea, it would be as if the United States made former president George H.W. Bush the director of Iraq after the Iraq war. Even if Koreans disliked being ruled by Japan, the country benefited in several ways. Through Japan, Korea was open to the Western world with new movie theaters, radio stations, department stores, and Western-style clothes and hairdos. Most importantly, thanks to Japanese investment, Korea became the most industrialized part of East Asia, not including Japan. Yet overall, Koreans emerged from the Second World War, which in Asia arguably lasted from 1931 to 1945, pretty angry and resentful toward Japan for its colonial rule and how they forced the Japanese language on Koreans conscripted them as soldiers and discouraged the Korean language. In our final segment, we'll discuss the Korean War and its 20th century aftermath and long, long-lasting influence into the 21st century as well when we're back with Purdy's podcast. Back to Purdy's podcast the Korean War and its aftermath. During World War II, Korea was a strategic afterthought for the major powers. Japan was busy in China with most of its army there and trying to fend off the American island-hopping drive toward its own home islands. China was busy with Japan, and a civil war was about to break out between Mao Zedong's communists and the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. The Soviet Union was consumed with its life and death struggle with the Germans, and the United States was fighting in Europe and the Pacific and focused on beating Germany first before turning to Japan. President Franklin Roosevelt had an idea for several major powers to share the administration of Korea after the war, but he died in April 1945 before he could see it through. The war with Japan ended more rapidly than expected, and then all of a sudden everyone remembered about Korea. The Soviet Red Army entered North Korea on August 9, 1945, and the Americans landed a month later in Southeast Korea. And so both superpowers both took the geographic roles of past historic invaders and occupiers. It seemed possible that Soviets, that the Soviets and Americans might start shooting at each other as a Cold War loomed. And so American military planners consulted a National Geographic map and suggested that Korea be divided at the 38th parallel, which had no historic, economic, or cultural meaning for Koreans, into North and South Korea, with elections in the future for a unified Korea. In South Korea, Syngman Rhee, 
a 70-year-old politician who had spent the last 35 years in the United States returned as president in South Korea after free elections in 1948. The North had no free elections, no elections. Kim Il-sung, a communist leader who had fled to the Soviet Union during the war, came back as president of North Korea. Then Mao Zedong's communists took over China in 1945, and it seemed communists might just go ahead and take over all of Asia. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin thought he saw a crack in American resolve when U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson gave a speech in January 1950 and wasn't totally clear about America's intent to defend South Korea. So Stalin allowed Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea. But we won't give you any air cover with our fighter jets or bombers, Stalin said. That's cool, said Kim Il-sung. We've got a nice little air force of our own and 200 of your new T-34 Soviet tanks. Well, South Korea had no air force and no tanks either. And there was only a small American force in Southeast Korea, and it had outdated weaponry. On June 25th, 1950, North Korea attacked South Korea. Three days in, they captured Seoul. And three weeks in, half the country was in their hands. Americans were freaked out. At the United Nations, the Soviets were sitting out the Security Council's meetings in protest that, com that Communist China had not been recognized diplomatically yet. And so no one was there to veto the UN's decision to support South Korea. The photo below on page 12 is of the Security Council in January 1950, when the Soviets decided to walk out. The United States led a coalition, including Britain, Turkey, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, Ethiopia, France, and many other countries against North Korea. General Douglas MacArthur, a World War II hero, took command. And with lots of reinforcements and American air power, the South Koreans and the UN pushed North Korea out of Seoul. Then MacArthur rolled the dice on one of the biggest gambles in military history. And on September 15th, 1950, he landed an army at Incheon, a port on the west coast of Korea that had no beach and just absolutely hellacious tides with huge waves that were totally unpredictable. Everything worked out nicely and the North Koreans fled in disarray. The UN forces passed the 38th parallel. They captured Pyongyang on October 19th, 1950 and they headed for the Yalu River up to the north. Will the Chinese communists intervene? Asked President Truman worriedly. No, said MacArthur. And if, if they do, it'll be the biggest bloodbath in history. Well, class, this was before satellite imagery. And actually the Chinese had already crossed the border and were hiding in wait for the UN forces. Zhu Enlai, a main Chinese leader had told the Indian ambassador to China that if the Americans cross the 38th parallel, then the Chinese would jump in. But the message was passed along and ignored by the United States. The Chinese shocked the United Nations forces and sent them fleeing back south. And on January 4th, 1951, Seoul fell again. MacArthur asked Truman for permission to take the war into China using atomic weapons if necessary, and was denied. MacArthur took his argument to the public and was fired for insubordination. The war dragged on for two more years, and with the final border being basically the 38th parallel. 
33,000 American soldiers had died, along with 800,000 Chinese and 3 million Koreans dead, wounded, or missing. It had been a tragic and a bloody disaster. And after the war into the present, North Korea emerged from the war strongly believing in Juche, self-reliance, so that they would not be totally dependent on China or the Soviets anymore. They adopted a weird kind of government, a hereditary communist state, with Kim Il-sung being succeeded by Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un, the present nemesis of the United States. While North Korea experienced some solid growth through the 1960s, spending a third of their gross national product on defense has caught up to them. And North Korea is very weak economically now, with periodic famines. One in 1996 killed one million people. They rely entirely on their nuclear weapons programs to blackmail South Korea and the West for food and aid. And in recent years, the regime has seemed more and more unstable. South Korea was one of the poorest nations on earth after the Korean War, but then experienced a huge boom starting in the 1960s and picking up steam in the 70s and 80s. The main reasons for South Korea's success have been land reform so that half the people no longer are poor tenant farmers and massive government investment in various companies and industries. They bet well with public money. This came in the form of very, very low interest loans to promising industries like automobiles, shipping, electronics, mass media, pop culture. This was mainly the work of Park Chung-hee, South Korea's president from 1961 to 1979 when, he's, when he was assassinated. He had served in the Japanese army during World War II and admired the Japanese government's support of major companies called Zaibatsu. South Korea developed its own big companies, known as Shebol, including Samsung and Hyundai. And these biggies carried the economy forward. A Hyundai worker, for example, would get her mortgage, schooling, apartment, healthcare, etc. from Hyundai. And these companies were key to Koreans' lives. South Korea's government had basically been a dictatorship from the 1960s to 1987, but with the Summer Olympic Games coming up in 1988, the people rose up and demanded a democracy before the whole world visited them the next year. It was the last Olympics of the Cold War, and important because the Soviets had boycotted the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles in response to the USA's boycotting the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. And I've got a photo of um, Florence Griffith Joyner competing in the Summer Games in Seoul, winning the 100-meter dash. I was 13 years old. It was thrilling. In 1998, there was a huge economic crisis in Asia, which, as you know, spawned the video game in industry in South Korea. And the Shebol suffered terribly, with 10 of the top 30 going bankrupt. But financial reforms and more support from the government carried most of these companies through. And they're still, like Samsung, like Hyundai, the mainstays of the South Korean economy. Today, South Korea is a fixture in the world's economy, a major trading partner of China, 25% of its exports go to China, 14% of its exports go to the United States, 7% go to Hong Kong, 7% to Vietnam, 5% to Japan. It consistently seeks to reduce tensions with North Korea and works toward reunification 
while also worrying about the awful financial costs of unifying with its relatively poor neighbor. Yet South Korea must also stand ready to defend itself from invasion, and so young Korean men are required to serve in the armed forces for a time. Even the biggest celebrities and stars, like one of the members from BTS, uh, just in December 2022, just responded for their tour of duty. BTS, on a side note, accounted for $5 billion in revenue almost in 2019, 0.3% of the country's gross national product. So long as peace can be maintained, Korea's future looks very bright in the 21st century. Thank you for joining me on Purdy's podcast and have a great afternoon.